How important is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to you? And and by that, I, I don't mean how important is this church building to you. The church, most properly, is not a place so much as it is a people. The people that God has saved and redeemed in Jesus Christ. J.I. Packer put it like this. The church is the supernatural society of God's redeemed and baptized people. Looking back to Christ's first coming with gratitude. And on to his second coming with hope. So how important is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to you? How important do you think the church is to God? In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul wrote that the church was the bride of Christ. In in other words, the church is the spouse of the Son of God. This, of course, is, is an analogy. It's an illustration, right? But there is a reality being disclosed in that analogy and illustration. God, and especially God the Son, loves the church. On September 19 and 1746, Jonathan Edwards preached an installation sermon for the commencement of Samuel Buell's uh, pastorate for the East Hampton Congregation on Long Island. Listen to what Edwards said of the church. He said, the creation of the world, get that category in your mind, the creation of the world seems to have been, especially for this end goal, that the eternal Son of God might obtain a spouse towards whom he might fully exercise the infinite benevolence of his nature, And to whom he might, as it were, open and pour forth all that immense fountain of condescension, love, and grace that was in his heart. And that in this way, God might be glorified. How important do you think the church is to God? Have you considered that? If you you call yourself a disciple of the Lord Jesus, a follower of the Lord Jesus, that you should love and esteem the church as your Savior loves and esteems the church. The church's importance in your life should mirror and reflect the church's importance to the Savior. Friends, the holy universal church is one of the core subjects of the Christian faith. There is no Christianity without the church. And there is no church without Christianity. So who is the church? How is it that she is holy when she is filled with so many sinners like us? Well, that's what I hope to unpack for us. As we drop back into our occasional doctrinal series. What is the church? Or who is the church? When we're looking at these words from the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the Holy Universal Church. When we confess those, uh, not just when we sing them, but when we do uh, confess them in, in a regular confession of the Apostles' Creed. Do we know what we're saying? Now as we're getting back into this doctrinal series, I had honestly hoped to cover the phrase, the Holy Universal Church, and the phrase, the communion of saints. But not wanting to extend this service into the evening service, I thought it best to break up the two phrases. So this morning, we're only going to unpack that phrase, the Holy Universal Church. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, to turn in them to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 11 to 22. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage on page 976. Now, just a few brief words on the Apostles' Creed. In the earliest form, the Apostles' Creed actually emerged as a list of questions which candidates for baptism would be asked as they prepared to enter into the visible membership of the Church of Jesus Christ. This kind of question and answer format uh, was used by a pastor in Rome named Hippolytus as early as 215 AD. The Creed, it was refined throughout the years and it likely reached its final form uh, sometime around the 7th century. 
The Apostles' Creed has been used by Christians to confess our faith in the triune God for nearly 1,800 years. To be sure, the Apostles' Creed was not so much written by Jesus' apostles as it was written to reflect the teaching of Jesus' apostles. And so the goal was to put into words a succinct summation of the Christian faith. And today we look at those words, the Holy Universal Church. And what we're really going to do is examine the biblical underpinnings of those words. So, in other words, I'm not preaching the creed. I'm preaching the doctrine of the Bible that the creed seeks to summarize. That's why we'll look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 22, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and a number of other passages in Ephesians. Um, We're going to be looking at the church. You'll find a sermon outline there in the bulletin that I I trust will be a helpful guide as we study along and perhaps provide you uh, further reflection on the subject. The scripture passages that are particularly underlined are going to be the passages that I read or ask you to turn to in your Bibles. And in the main, as we seek to understand the Bible's teaching on the church, we'll actually allow this line in the creeds to be our guide. So we'll unpack the words, the holy universal church. So under the following headings, the church is tied together in Jesus Christ. And here we're going to explore the church's unity. The church is transformed by Jesus. And here we'll explore the church's holiness. The church is transcendent because of Jesus. So here we explore the the church's universality, the global nature, its endless, uh, its, its ageless nature. And finally, the church is taught about Jesus. And we're going to explore the church's apostolic foundation. Those four points are going to form the outline of the rest of the sermon. And it's my prayer that they will help us to see who we are as a church, who we belong to, and what we are to be and do as God's people. We're marked by God-given attributes. We're meant to be on a mission that invites sinners to come and be tied into Christ and His church, transformed by Jesus' saving power, true to the worldwide mission that Jesus has announced, and faithfully teaching the good news about Jesus. So let's begin to unpack these God-given attributes. As we do, let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. And I want you to notice the first attribute that we're looking at. The the kind of the oneness of the church of the Lord Jesus. How we're all tied together. Actually, all of the attributes that we're going to look at today are in this passage. But try to see if you can see how in this passage, Paul speaks about the unity of the church. Follow along as I read Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him 
you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he is addressing how God in Jesus Christ has tied together as one church men and women from different ethnic backgrounds. Right? He begins with the, the Gentiles and noting that they were separated, alienated. They were strangers of God, verse 12. And in that condition, Paul tells us, the Gentiles had no hope. They were without God in the world. But, verse 13, you see the but there? That change has taken place. Those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And they've not been merely brought near, but they've been united to Jesus Christ. Made one with Jewish peoples who have also embraced Jesus Christ in faith. Verse 15. In Jesus, those two, those who were formerly two, have been made one. Verse 16. They've been tied together. According to Paul, hostility has been killed. Verse 16. Both have access to the Holy Spirit. Both are welcomed by the Father. Verse 18. Both Jews and Gentiles are fellow citizens. Verse 19. They're both children in the household of God. Verse 19. And who have the same foundation. Verse 20. And are part of the same structure. Verse 21. And are part of the same dwelling place of God the Spirit. Verse 22. You see the oneness that Paul is trying to stress for the church there in Ephesus. It is a oneness that is connected to Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus is one because they are savingly united to their one head, Jesus Christ. This has been accomplished by the uniting work of the Holy Spirit. It's not by accident, too, that the authors of the creed place the church under the heading of belief in the Holy Spirit. It follows because the Spirit gives birth to the church by connecting her to her one head. The church of the Lord Jesus is one because she's united by the one Spirit to the one head, the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 18, and he, that's Jesus, and he, the head of the body, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Beloved, there's, there's application here for us, right here and now. Given that God has tied his people together in Jesus Christ, given that he has killed hostility between members of his body, between Jews and Gentiles, and that's just everybody else in the world, Given that Jesus, through the cross, has killed hostility between his people, then we should not seek to resurrect it. Right? We cannot abide any form of partiality or preference. No, we are tied together in Jesus Christ. We are all a part of the fallen race of Adam. And we all need to be redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come from different tongues and tribes and nations, and yet we are united in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those differences are not grounds for division. Because Christ is the center of our union. We've been tied to Him. And He binds Himself to all of His people. So we must be one with one another. And our church, in God's kindness, is a living testimony of the gospel-uniting power in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, in this church family, we will not let the world pit us against one another. Instead, we will let the word of Christ dwell in us richly so that we show our unity in Jesus Christ. We're not going to move away from those who are not like us we're going to move toward them in love. The church not only has one source and Savior, but she only has one Lord. Just as Eve was formed from the rib of Adam, so the church was formed by God from the bloody side of her head and husband, the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, so far I've been talking about the church as one, 
And yet, you all know that there are many churches, right? There are other churches even around us in this geographical era, area. We know from the scriptures that there is one church. After all, Jesus Christ promised in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He speaks about building his church, not his churches. And still we know, even from the book of Acts and our study there, that Paul and others go about planting churches, right? There's the, the church in Antioch and in other places. So we know that the many churches, many local churches, make up the one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus has only one bride, as we learn from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. There is one church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, as I said, we can, we can speak about the church in Ephesus, or the church in Antioch, or the church in Corinth, or in Thessalonica, or in Arlington, Virginia, and so on. No single local church constitutes the whole expression of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as a body is made up of many members, right? An arm is a member, another arm is a member, and legs and so on. So many members make up a single body. So the one church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has existed throughout space and time, is made up of local churches, many local churches here on earth. And these many churches who make up the one church of the Lord Jesus Christ show us that the church is one organically, not organizationally. The church is one, not as an earthly institution, but through God's spiritual incorporation of them into the one faith. Skip over to Ephesians chapter 4. Skip over chapter 2 to Ephesians chapter 4 and find verses 1 to 6 and see how Paul connects the unity of the church into the, the, the one faith. Read Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 to 6. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in the, to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's the unity that the Scriptures have in mind, a spiritual unity. In Christ, the authority and sufficiency of his word, his gospel, his truth, and it's a unity that is real and that exists. So consider this example. An Assembly of God missionary in Cambodia, an Anglican minister in Sydney, a Baptist pastor in Portugal, a Lutheran minister in, in Alexandria, a Presbyterian minister in New Zealand, a Korean missionary in Turkey, and an interdenominational pastor in Ras al-Khaimah may have never met, but they preach the same gospel when they proclaim that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And that is a real and living unity among the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now think of all those places that I just named and the gospel expression there. This unity, organically, not organizationally, it allows for true unity, but does not demand uniformity. This is a point that's often missed in our society today. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. So a, a church in sub-Saharan Africa does not have to sing the same hymns and songs in the same way that we do. And yet we have unity with them insofar as we preach and proclaim the same faith in the one Lord Jesus Christ. The oneness of the church is not a reaction to a creed or a constitutional church order but rather the oneness of the church is brought about by her head, Jesus Christ. The many churches are tied together in Jesus Christ. 
Herman Bovink puts it like this. It is Jesus who, continuing his mediatorial work in the state of exaltation, joins his churches together and builds them up from within himself as the head and governs it, gathers and governs it, always remains with it, and is most intimately connected with it and dwells in it by his spirit. One attribute of the church is that she is one, that she's tied together in Jesus Christ. Another attribute of the church is that she is holy, that she is transformed by Jesus. This is our second point. The church is transformed by Jesus. And the church is transformed by Jesus in a couple of ways, right? Sinners, like you and me, we are made saints through salvation in Jesus Christ. But saints are also transformed as they mature in holiness. So turn back to Ephesians 2. I think you're in Ephesians 4. Go back to Ephesians 2. And when you get there, look at verse 22. Do you see what Paul says there? Paul says that those who are fellow citizens and members of the household of God are not only built on Jesus and the apostles, but that as a whole, the structure, they're being joined together and growing into what? Into a holy temple in the Lord. Not only that, they are a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. This is why we confess that the church is holy. To be holy means to be set apart, right? Separate from sin. This is what makes the holy God holy other, right? He is completely and totally separated from sin. He's perfect in purity and righteousness. Think back to how God responded to Nadab and Abihu when they offered unauthorized or strange fire. What did God do? He responded with his own consuming fire. God made it clear that he was to be honored as holy, set apart as holy other, and it couldn't be worshipped in any common or profane ways. No, he needed to be worshipped in holiness. You remember what the angels of Isaiah 6 proclaimed, right? They proclaimed, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And the Lord told his people, be holy as I am holy. When speaking about the church, the apostle Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So how is it that when we confess the Apostles' Creed, how is it we confess that the church is holy when she's filled with such unholy people? We confess that the church is holy because Jesus makes her holy and because he matures her in holiness. It is Jesus who transforms the church and makes her holy. Holy. Listen to what God has done in Jesus Christ. This is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 says this, that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You see, Jesus set the church aside for salvation, set us apart for salvation, calling his people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Not only that, but Jesus sanctifies and purifies his church in his grace. Flip back over to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Friends, we cannot make ourselves holy in the hopes of being incorporated into Jesus' church. No, Jesus must save us, set us apart for holiness, and sanctify us by his Holy Spirit. As we as we read. These verses, verses 25 to 27 of Ephesians chapter 5, notice how Paul describes the work of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning his church. Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The church is first made holy by salvation. She is set apart to receive the special saving love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus who makes the church and the members of his church holy. So friend, if you're, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps you're thinking to yourself that you need to be holy. Indeed, you do. We all need to be holy. You need perfect purity. You need radical righteousness because the holy God will only receive holy people into his holy presence. But the truth is, is that by nature, none of us are holy. No, we are in the words of Paul, the words that we just read. We're in need of cleansing, right? Because we're stained with sin. We're in need need of washing because we're dirty with depravity. So if you come here thinking that you need to get yourself cleaned up in order to be accepted by God, then you've got it all wrong. Look Look at the words of Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. It's Jesus who makes us clean. It's Jesus who washes. It's Jesus who cleanses. It's Jesus who presents his church in splendor. It's Jesus who removes the spots. It's Jesus who irons out the wrinkles. It's Jesus who heals the blemishes. Friend, you know your own heart. And you know that you cannot overcome your sin. But Jesus can. That's the good news of the scriptures. Friends, Jesus is God's great gift to the world. Because in the person of Jesus... The eternal Son of God came to earth. Jesus lived the life of perfect purity, the life of radical righteousness, the life of obedience to God's law, the life that we have not lived. We have ruled our own life, and we have rebelled against God's law. But Jesus did not. He obeyed His Father every step of the way, and yet He laid down His life on the cross, dying on the cross, bearing the sin and the punishment due to sin for all of those who would ever turn from their sin and place their faith in Him. And that is how Jesus can make us clean, by the shedding of His blood. And how can we know that? How can we know that we've been accepted as righteous in God's sight? Well, God gave us a sign. Three days after Jesus' death on the cross, He raised His Son from the grave, vindicating Him and proving to us all that all those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will receive His record of righteousness credited to their account. So friend, you cannot be holy. But Jesus can give his holy life to you. And it can stand as a banner over your life. And so when, when God, you stand before the Lord God on, on the judgment day. And you say, he says to you, why should I welcome you in to heaven? You say, you shouldn't. But because of the life of your holy son, I, I trust in him. That God the Father will welcome you in and receive you into his glorious presence. Because Jesus is the one who's made you clean. Because Jesus is the one who's washed you. Because Jesus is the one who set you apart and made you holy. Friend, turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ today. He can make you clean. He washes us with his blood. And that is our great hope. And if you want to know more about what it means to be loved by the Lord Jesus Christ and incorporated into church, into the, his church as part of his beloved bride, come and find me at the door after the service. Uh, talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning and know for certain that Jesus can make you clean. The church is made holy by Jesus in salvation. And the church is increasingly made holy by Jesus through her life on earth in sanctification. Theologians 
will often speak of holiness and sanctification in several different ways. There is a positional sanctification and holiness. That's where God sets us apart and places us in Christ. We're, we're in the position of being hidden in Christ and trusting in Him. And so we are saved. That is a positional kind of sanctification and holiness. But then there is progressive sanctification and holiness. Where we continue to fight against sin and grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. In other words, to say that the church is holy is not to say that she's completely free of sin. No, we, we know our own lives. Though we may be saved, we know that we still struggle with sin. The church is a company of sinners saved by grace and made holy by Jesus Christ. But we still continue to fight the indwelling sin that remains. Don't forget the opening words, the, the words of Paul in our opening text. If you flip back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 21, you'll see that Paul spoke of the reality that the church is growing into a holy temple. That's the, the nature of the Christian life. We are growing into a holy temple. That growth is not yet complete. And that it will not be complete until glory. And this, this growth in holiness is part of God's will for us. So, so listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7. For God has not called us, called us for impurity, but in holiness. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 tells us that we're called to be saints, or literally holy ones. Beloved, this, this, application, this raises application for you and me, doesn't it? Are our lives, as Christians individually, and as a church corporately, are they marked by holiness? Are our lives distinct and different from that of the world? Are the, are the words of Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, true of us? Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Is your conduct in this life described as honorable? Is your life filled with good deeds? Do we have the clear consciences and the good behavior that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 16? He says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It is holiness that actually sets us apart from the world. And sometimes it is our holiness that instigates the hostility of the world. It's holiness that makes us distinctive. So, so do your coworkers and neighbors and friends know you as a holy person? I think you ought to be known as a holy person. Not holier than thou, but you ought to be known as holy. Do they see you separate yourself from sin? Seeking to live a life set apart from sin. A life devoted to purity in God's sight and righteousness according to God's design. Holiness means in part that we no longer identify with the world but also that the world can identify us with the holy God. Brothers and sisters, even as we think about the need to mature and grow in holiness, we must always remember that Jesus has made us holy. Good works flow out of gratitude for God's grace. It is remembering that we have been made holy that motivates us to mature in holiness. The great Puritan minister, John Owen, once wrote, Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. Holiness is what Christ has transformed us for. He has made us holy so we might mature in holiness. The church is holy and is becoming more holy. We are, as Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, a holy priesthood, a people for God's possession. Does God own you? And do you feel that ownership 
over your life. This not only has application for us individually, but also corporately as a church. Honestly, the calling of the church to holiness is one of the reasons that we practice church discipline here at Arlington Baptist Church. In other words, if if a person joins our church family and they become ensnared in sin and they refuse to repent of their sin and they're beckoned by the church to turn away from their sin and to come back to the Lord Jesus Christ and faithless to Him, then we will remove that person as a member of our church family. And when that removal takes place, they are under the discipline of the church, not permitted to partake of the Lord's Supper here until they've repented of their sins and returned to Christ and been reunited with His church. And this, this is simply a faithful application of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me encourage you to read that chapter later today. But essentially, it's where the Apostle Paul exhorts the congregation in Corinth to remove an unrepentant adulterer from their church body. And one of the reasons that Paul, that Paul exhorts them to remove this unrepentant adulterer from their church family is because he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul sees the, the unadmonished, the uncorrected, the undisciplined member of the church as dangerous to the church's holiness and health. Our ensnarement in sin as individuals can tempt other members of the body to give themselves to other ensnarements of sin. And as strange as it may sound, the holiness of the church is critical to her mission. If the church is not holy, then how can she proclaim the grace and mercy of the holy God with conviction, zeal, and earnestness? Your fellow members, brothers and sisters, your fellow members need your holiness. They need your holiness. The world needs your holiness. So we give thanks that Christ has not only made us holy, but that he is maturing us in holiness. We confess that the church is one, that the church is holy, and that the church is universal. That's the third attribute of the church. And in this attribute, we see that the church is transcendent because of Jesus. That's our third point. The church is transcendent because her Lord transcends all of time and space in his rule over his people. This is what makes the church universal. And the church is universal in the sense that God gathers his church from everywhere, every class, and from every period of time. The church is universal in the sense that the people of God are spread all over the globe. We prayed for for brothers and sisters from the nation of Sri Lanka this morning, right? There are Christians all over the globe. God has chosen to save people from every tongue and tribe and nation. So listen to these words from Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 picture of God's people gathered. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Remember how Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 to 22 declared that Jews and Gentiles right Gentiles are everybody else in the world how Jews and Gentiles were being joined together. The church is universal in the sense that people from all over the globe, from different ethnic backgrounds, make up the church. But the church is universal in another sense as well. The church is made up of people from different economic backgrounds. So consider the church in Corinth. Uh, Do you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31? Let me just read some of verse 26. Paul said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Right? Not many wise. Not many powerful. Not many of noble birth. And still it seems like it's possible that some of them were wise. And some did have power of some form in that society. And some were 
from noble birth. But here, we see that the Lord God has called sinners from every economic station into his church. He favors none. He favors none because of their financial, social, governmental, or cultural position. But he makes all his children spiritually rich in the Lord Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus is universal in the sense that God saves people from everywhere. He saves them from every class and strata of society. But the church is also universal in the sense that God saves his people from every period of time. So the saints in the Old Testament, those who trusted in God's promises of a Messiah, are part of the people of God, the church, across the ages, and are properly understood to be a part of God's called out assembly. So our word for church in the New Testament is ecclesia, and it simply means assembly or even called out ones. It's the Old Testament counterpart to the word kahal, which means the, the very same thing, the assembly of God's people. Those who received salvation prior to the incarnation of the Son, right, prior to Jesus coming, in fulfillment of the plan of redemption, did so on the basis of belief in God's promises to send a Messiah who would rescue his people from their sins. And so now we know from Acts chapter 4 verse 12 that there is salvation in no other name but the name of Jesus. What was concealed in the Old Testament has been revealed in the New. The church is universal or Catholic, to use the old word in the sense. She's one through all of the ages, believing on God's promises in faith, obeying God's commands out of love, and gathering with God's people. Now, I've chosen to use the word universal in place of the word Catholic, which I just recently used, precisely because of the misunderstanding that so often accompanies the use of that word. Still, you need to be equipped to interact with that word because that's often how, when the creed is said or mentioned in English, that word Catholic is used in place of the word universal. The truth is, is that in the course of church history, this attribute of the church, the universality, has usually been referred to Catholic, uh, Catholic Hain. Uh, that's a small C Catholic, not a big C Catholic. So in days gone by, everyone agreed that Catholic meant universal, uh, not Roman Catholic. Nowadays, our friends in the Roman Catholic Church would like to latch on to this traditional attribute of the church in order to bolster her claim as the one true church. But there is a kind of strange irony in this, a contradiction actually from the mouth of Rome herself. Um, I've described the universality or Catholicity of the church as the people that God saves from everywhere, every class, and in every place. And that necessarily means that the church can have different ethnic expressions, right? different use of language, different levels of wealth, and even have worship that is not primarily Roman in expression. So, so the irony of the Roman Catholic Church is that she puts the emphasis on Roman rather than on Catholic. To think back to the example that I gave just a few minutes ago, right, of the Assembly of God missionary in Cambodia, Cambodia the, the Anglican minister in Sydney, the Baptist pastor in Portugal, the Lutheran minister in Alexandria, the Presbyterian minister in New Zealand, Korean minister in Turkey, interdenominational pastor in Ras al-Khaimah, they can all preach the gospel in ways appropriate to their culture. And their liturgy is faithful to God insofar as it is faithful to the word of God. But the Roman Catholic Church actually mutes and subverts the universality and the Catholicity of the church by ordering her Roman liturgy upon its gatherings in various places scattered throughout the world. It was only until recently with the permission of Vatican II, that the Roman Catholic Church began to permit the Mass to be conducted in languages other than Latin. So think of all those places in the world I just mentioned. 
Up until Vatican II, they would all have to be performed in Latin. This is not Catholicity or universality that the Scriptures has in view. As the Roman Catholic Church communicates and commands one culture, one tradition, and one liturgy, really a Roman one. It's not really unity or universality. It's uniformity to Rome. Rome has forgotten what the early church fathers said. Ignatius of Antioch said, Wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic Church. And Irenaeus wrote, For where the church is, there is the Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God is, there is the church. And every kind of grace, but the Spirit of truth. The church is Catholic, or universal, because it's connected to the triune God. The church is universal or Catholic because she's united to the man, Christ Jesus, who has been given authority, all authority, in heaven and on earth. Not because it is connected to an earthly man who can only be at one place at one time like the Pope. The church is united by the same truth and yet, in God's wisdom, has a diversity of expression. We see the Catholic church, we see the universal church around the world uh, when we see, in the words of the 29th article, of the Belgic Confession, the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein. If it maintains the pure administration of the ordinances as instituted by Christ, that baptism in the Lord's Supper, that's baptism in the Lord's Supper, uh, if church discipline is exercised in chastening of sin, in short, if all of these things are managed according to the pure word of God and all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged as the only head of the church, hereby the true church may certainly be known, from which no man has a right to separate himself. So friends, brothers and sisters, we are actually showing ourselves to be a part of the universal church of God this morning as we hear God's word proclaimed and as we celebrate the ordinances. We, we are displaying that we are part of the universal church of God. But beyond that, beloved, as, as best we can, we actually want to support and further the establishment of the universal church around the globe. So it's why we support Mark Collins and his work to establish churches in East Asia and raise up pastors to serve and care for those churches. It's why we support Tiago Oliveira as he seeks to establish Martin Bootser Seminary in, uh, in Lisbon, Portugal, which will train up Portuguese-speaking pastors and establish holy churches in Portuguese portions of the world. It's why we support Charlie and Rachel Armstrong in their efforts to not only establish a healthy church in Marseille, France, but to evangelize and disciple and train up men who go back to their home countries in the Arab world, in North Africa and the Middle East, to evangelize and establish churches there. Being a part of the universal church means that we need to not only pray for these brothers and sisters in Christ, but it also means that we should partner with them to the fullest practical extent. So praying, we do that every Lord's Day morning. We pray for another country around the world. And we partner as we, we give as part of our church's budget to see the, the, the work of the gospel go around the world. Though Jesus is building his work, his church around the world, we're also called, called to partner with him in that work. Now there's one final attribute that we need to examine. And it connects well to the building analogy that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 16 concerning his church. If you're not already there, turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. And when you get there, especially zero in on the last few verses of the chapter. Oh, verses 18 to 22. Here we're going to see that the church today is built on the foundation of Jesus and the apostles. And what that means is that in receiving the apostles' teaching, the church, is, the church is taught about Jesus Christ. That's our fourth and final point. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, 
Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Throughout the course of church history, believers have referred to the church as apostolic, as you see there, and they do so from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 and following. The scriptures consider the apostles as of a single piece with the foundation of the church. And note that Paul views the history of the church as something of a building project. You get the analogy that Paul is working out here. This is a, a building project. The foundation of the church has been laid in the lives of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles and prophets. Once a foundation has been laid, you start building, which is why there are no more apostles today. The foundation has already been laid. Apostles are those who have personally seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ with their very eyes and have been directly commissioned by Him to carry out the foundation-laying work of the church. Their ministry was unique and unrepeatable in that sense. And Jesus underscored that in His teaching. So in His high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, verse 20, Jesus prayed for those who would believe in Him through the teaching of the apostles. So in John chapter 17, verse 20, He prayed, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, referring to the disciples who were with him there in that upper room. So now that the foundation of the gospel has been laid, and the gospel has been proclaimed, the building up of the church has begun. And that's why there are no more apostles. Now I know that in your personal experience, you might come across some churches who refer to their pastors as apostles. But frankly, they're, they're mistaken. They are right to... Be, to desire to be connected to the apostles, and the church is connected to the apostles, but not through an apostolic succession of persons, but through the succession of the teaching and preaching of the apostolic gospel, preaching the same gospel the apostles preached. This is how the church taught is taught about Jesus. In fact, passing on the apostolic gospel, the preaching of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection was clearly a concern of the apostles and other New Testament writers. Think of how passionately Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, how he exhorted them to hold on to the gospel that he preached and proclaimed. Think of how he warned them and encouraged them to reject false teachers of the gospel, those who preached a different gospel. Think too of how Paul, at the end of his life, exhorted Timothy to pass on the pattern of sound words and to guard the good deposit. You can find that in 2 Timothy chapter uh, 1, verses 18 to 14. I'd encourage you to read that later today. Paul says, pass on the pattern of sound words. Paul was speaking of a codified, a clear body of teaching that the churches were to pass on. And that was the apostles' teaching. But also, not only that, to guard it, to protect it. So just before uh, Paul told Timothy to guard and protect it and to pass on the pattern of sound words, he actually talked about what that was. He talked about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And of course, who can forget Jude 3? The entire purpose of Jude's letter is to exhort believers to guard the apostolic gospel, the heart of the Christian faith. Listen to Jude 3 and 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faints, to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The church is the church of the Lord Jesus only insofar as she holds to the apostolic preaching and teaching found in the Word of God. Like Paul exhorted and instructed Timothy, we too must pass on the pattern of sound words. Like Jude, we too must contend for the faith once for all delivered for the saints. And that's part of the reason that we're preaching through the Apostles' Creed and the, the, the Bible that the Creed is seeking to summarize. Part of the goal is to pass on the faith. The church is apostolic not because of a man on a seat in Rome, but because of the message that the apostles preached of the God-man who was crucified on that Roman cross. This is how the church remains the pillar and buttress of the truth, as Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And this is our call, to keep preaching the same truth the apostles of Jesus preached. And in many ways, you are all responsible for maintaining the apostolic nature of our church. It is one of the reasons that we ask members to sign our church's statement of faith. Our church's statement of faith is a faithful representation of the apostolic preaching and teaching of the Word of God. And signing our church's statement of faith is a visible signal that you are committed to holding me, to holding the elders of this church and other teachers of the church accountable and responsible to remain faithful to the Scriptures. Even your own personal study of the Scriptures helps to this end. As the Word of God sharpens you in your personal and private study, you are helped to see more clearly the apostolic gospel. As you study theology, you are equipped to work to, to the work of maintaining the apostolic nature of the church as you discuss these items with fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Even teaching the children in Sunday school is a kind of participating, of passing on the pattern of sound words, the apostolic gospel that we have. So jump in and participate in the work that other brothers and sisters in Christ have given themselves to for, for the last 2,000 years. In doing so, you are joining the historic work of passing on the pattern of sound words as you teach children and other Christians. And as we conclude, we need to recognize that we've already been tied together in Jesus Christ. We are already one throughout the ages. We have already been transformed by Jesus, even as he continues to transform us. We have been made holy, and we are maturing in holiness. We are already a part of that transcendent, universal, and Catholic body of Christ. We are already an apostolic church, and we will continue to be, and as we hold on to the apostolic teaching of the Word of God. But this sermon began with a question. Do you remember it? How important is the church of Jesus Christ to you? Do you love the church that Jesus loves? What would love look like? For you. Maybe it would look like this. Maybe it would look like being committed to the church's unity. Her oneness. By laboring to diffuse divisions. And encourage peace. Love would look like being committed to the church's holiness. By your own personal pursuit of holiness. And by your prayer and your concern. That the church remains corporately holy. Love would look like being committed to the church's universality. And Catholicity, as you pray for and partner in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ around the world. Love would look like being committed to the church's apostolicity as you grow in your knowledge of God's truth and pass on that truth to others. If you loved the church like this, 
then it would require you to give a lot of yourself. But remember what Christ has given for you. Remember what the dear Dr. Edwards said when he said that toward his church, Jesus has fully exercised the infinite benevolence of his nature. He has opened and poured forth that immense fountain of condescension and love and grace that was in his heart toward his people, toward you. Love the church because you love the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, we love because he first loved us. Let's pray for that grace now. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks that he has united us together in himself and that we are one. And we even look forward to this expression of our oneness in the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, we pray and ask that you would make us holy. That you would set us apart for salvation. And that you would help us to grow in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to delight in the work of Jesus that is occurring around the world. Help us to pray for gospel work here and beyond. And Father, we pray and ask that we would never forsake the true teaching of your word. Father, help us to remain faithful until the last day. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.